0: Welcome to the Elevation Podcast, where we explore practical strategies for positive leadership. I'm Terry Lane with Community Health Solutions, and I'm excited to introduce our guest. In this edition, Steve Horn of Community Health Solutions interviews Lynn Hughes, founder and CEO of Comfort Zone Camp. Comfort Zone Camp is a nonprofit 501c3 bereavement organization that transforms the lives of children who have experienced the death of a parent, sibling, primary caregiver or significant person. The programs are free of charge and include trust-building activities and age-based support groups that break the emotional isolation grief often brings. Comfort Zone Camp offers programs for children ages 7 to 17 and their families, plus young adult programs for 18 to 25-year-olds. Lynn Hughes is a positive leader with deep and wide experience helping people heal and build resilience. Beyond her work with children and families at Comfort Zone Camp, Lynn has provided training and guidance for hundreds of professionals in the health and human service fields. In this podcast, Lynn shares a message of hope and healing for all of us who may be struggling with life challenges and their impact on our personal and professional lives. She also shares some practical strategies and tips to help us help each other heal and build resilience. Thank you for joining us for this positive leadership conversation with Lynn Hughes.
1: We're so happy to have with us today, Lynn Hughes, founder and CEO of Comfort Zone Camp to talk about finding resilience in challenging times. Welcome Lynn.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you here. Let's jump right into it. First, some background. Tell us about Comfort Zone Camp, the organization, and what you're all about. Sure.
2: Comfort Zone Camp is the nation's largest bereavement camp. We help grieving kids who've experienced the death of a close loved one, a parent, a sibling, primary caregiver, or a friend. We offer Pre-COVID, we can sleep over camps that are of no cost around the country, although we're headquartered right here in Richmond, Virginia. And then post-COVID, we had to pivot and we figured out how to do things virtually. So now we continue to offer virtual camps uh, for parents and for, for grieving kids. We offer them starting at age seven years old up to age 25. And I uh, have found that the parent programs are really effective as well.
1: Now, that's a mission. Thanks for sharing. Lynn, every leader has their own journey and a personal story that leads them to where they are. Could you share a brief version of your personal story that led you to create Comfort Zone Camp?
2: My my journey is interesting because it really is the personal and professional colliding. And sometimes you think your life is random and then you kind of realize your whole life was in training for something. And I grew up in Michigan. I drink pop, I play Euchre if anybody is from the Midwest, and I am one of four, I'm the only girl. And when I was nine years old, my mother uh, was playing tennis and pulled a muscle in her leg, and she died three days later from a blood clot from that muscle pull. So it was fluky, weird, almost never happens, did happen to my family. Uh, My dad had a rough go of it. He uh, He knew how to be the dad and not how to take on the role of being the dad and the mom started dating right away, got married about a year after my mom died, and then the year after that, he had a heart attack, and he died the day before I started junior high when I was 12. And I struggled with the why, as, as adults do, but like kids do as well, trying to find out, figure out why did this happen to me and make some sense of it. And for me, I thought, I thought I was special, I was supposed to use my life in some way to make a difference, had no idea what it meant, but it kind of gave me this purpose to keep going, So I did go to summer camp after my parents died. I loved it. It was a magical bubble where time stood still. You could get back to being a kid again, and nobody really uh, cared about your loss. You just, you you fit in, and I loved that bubble. So I got to college. I was at Michigan State, still feeling that pressure to use my life to make a difference. No idea what major it is to use your life to make a difference. Uh, But I knew I wanted to be a camp counselor before I graduated. And so I went to a summer camp. In the Poconos, and ironically, I met my husband, who was also a camp counselor at that summer camp, which I joke sounds like a bad TV movie, but true story. <laughs> but he and I both shared a love for kids in summer camp, and we went three summers. And then I, I graduated. I moved to Richmond. I hopped onto his life down here and had a lot of jobs that seemed random. I was in outside sales. I. Uh, I, which helped get me training uh, with sales and presentations. I worked for a, a for-profit management company that managed a bunch of medical nonprofits. And I served as their executive director for about four or five organizations at a time. So I got lots of nonprofit experience. And then I worked as a ho- at a hospice where I was a paid volunteer coordinator, where I got formal grief training and volunteer management. At the same time, my husband was saying, what can we be when we grow up? And, and can we ever go back to camp? And I realized that there were still no resources. There weren't any resources when I was coming along after losing my parents. You were doing well if you acted like it didn't happen to you. Many years later, there still weren't any resources. So we combined our love of summer camp with an unmet need in society. And it turns out that sales, nonprofit, volunteer management, and grief training all gave me the perfect skill set to start a bereavement camp. So now we're 23 years old. We've helped over 20,000 children from around the country, all at no
1: cost. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing your journey there, Lynn. And I have had the experience in my journey of hearing you present at training conferences multiple times. And one thing that always strikes me is your insights on something called life grief. Share with us, Lynn, what is life grief and why does it matter for people working in mission-driven organizations today?
2: I think we get locked in, and when we hear the word grief, it has to be to death. And I think for many of us who've lived a few years that you can grieve other things besides a death. And anytime that you lose something that you didn't have control over, it could be a person, it could be a job, it could be a place, you're grieving. You are grieving that event. And I had it happen to myself. I I had a a breakup for a few years with Comfort Zone. And it was fascinating to me to pull out all of the coping skills, all of the grief skills that I had learned and that I counseled others on and to apply them to myself, that I had this life transition that wasn't fair. I didn't have control over. And I found myself at a crossroads of deciding what what meaning I was going to take away from it. And was I going to move forward? And that intentionality... Uh, to heal and to adapt and to pivot, and I saw it. I I was I I had spent over 15 years in the medical nonprofit world as well as 17 years doing uh, the comfort zone. And when I was reengaging in the medical nonprofit after a hiatus of about 12 years, what I came back and saw healthcare personnel doing—that somebody changed the rules. The profession they signed up for wasn't how they were practicing medicine. They were at a crossroad. It wasn't fair. And they had to figure out, are they going to adapt, pivot, burn out, or find purpose and meaning and move forward? So that life grief, I've seen it in all kinds of instances. And then we get to the pandemic, Steve, and life grief, it wasn't just you and I talking about it. And it wasn't just in the healthcare space. And it wasn't just my personal life. Everybody was experienced the loss of life events and people and milestones and um, life as they knew it. And if you, you, so everybody was grieving, collectively, globally. Um, so it was It was. It was really uh, interesting to see. And I think people, if they didn't honor that or know that, I think that they might, they struggled more, um, not being able to embrace what were those emotions and feelings and the depression, anxiety, and, you know, what is this that I'm feeling? But it, it was grief. And it's, it still is. We're still, I mean, we're close to being out, depending on who you talk to, but it's been two years of life grieving
1: that really resonates. And and I think all of us, if we think through the relationships we have, the conversations we have, and even looking at ourselves, we may not use that phrase life grief, but it's certainly there and it's a reality. Uh, But there's also a possibility called resilience. Resilience. And Lynn, from your perspective, what is resilience and when do we need it?
2: Resilience is something everybody needs and some people might be more predisposed to but everybody can grow their resiliency muscles. And resilience is simply adversity is going to happen to all of us from small moments to big moments. And when it happens, something unfair happens that we didn't have control over resilience is that decision and that ability to bounce, to move forward. And it's, it's making that choice. So it's so important in the nonprofit world. It's so important in the healthcare space. It's so important in your personal life it all plays into that. And you would ask me about the mission-driven organizations. I mean, they were experiencing so much life grief that so many nonprofits weren't able to to function, to to meet the needs of the purpose that they exist for, whether it was offering their programs, whether it was their ability to, to meet and have connections in person. There were layoffs, there were closed doors, there was creating new programs. There was and and in that if they were able to pivot and create new programs, there was that tension and stress over and over again of not feeling like on solid footing, that they're having to relearn and pivot and pivot and what's this you know change mean and um, so I think it, it, if you're in a mission-driven organization, it has been extremely um, stressful on on top of that and resilience is needed. It's needed at work. It's needed at home.
1: Lynn, what are some characteristics of resilience? And here's what I mean. If I'm looking at myself or if I'm looking around uh, at my teammates, how do I know it when I see it? How do I know if someone has resilience?
2: There's, there are several characteristics. One of them is how people speak. What comes out of their mouth? So when a, when a new boss comes in, for instance, are you the person who says, I can't wait to work with this person. I can't wait to see what type of leader they are, what they bring to the table. Or are you the person that says, I wonder how bad this one's going to be? Oh, great. Here we go again. Here's another round of change. So, you know, are you a Tigger or are you an Eeyore? You know, and even in COVID, are you somebody who, when you think about COVID, is it all gloom and doom? And it's challenging and as hard as it has been for everyone. And certainly some people, first responders and so forth, you know, even more challenging, but can you look back and reflect, was there anything, something good from something bad? So it's how they speak, what value and meaning do they assign to their adversity? Can they see any type of optimism or any type of something good from something bad? Um, You know, my daughter didn't have a senior high school graduation, but we pivoted and came up with this backyard graduation that was really intimate and lovely. Uh, my son was supposed to be doing all these things at college. Instead, he came home. He lost a bunch of weight. He was home for his twenty-first birthday. He won an award, and we got to be with him when he got the award. I mean, there. I could go on, and I'm that if you can see that there were even in the darkest moments that there was some some something good and something positive. So it's how do you speak? Are you optimistic? Do you find purpose and meaning? A lot of people who are resilient tend to, ha- tend to have strong faith or spirituality. Um, they tend to have strong relationships with, with friends and coworkers, humor, uh, that they tend to be able to laugh at the ridiculousness of a situation or even themselves. And another key one is the ability to forgive, whether they're able to forgive themselves for making mistakes or not being perfect or forgive others in their life who might have harmed them intentionally or unintentionally. And when, when, we, when we don't forgive and we carry heaviness around, That takes up space for joy or or optimism or hope. So really, when we forgive, it's a gift to ourselves. So those are really the the characteristics of resilient people.
1: Lynn, how can we find and strengthen our own resilience? If I'm looking at myself and I realize I have some days that are better than others and I'd like to be a more resilient person, uh, what are some practical things I can do to find and strengthen my own resilience?
2: it it is the act of being intentional about it. So first you got to speak it. You got to say you're going to do it whether you do gratitude and come up with three things a day and you, so you're retraining your brain, you're rewiring your brain. And when you think about it takes 21 days to form a new habit, think about 2 years of wiring our brain to be on guard, to be waiting for the other shoe to drop, to be a clenched fist during covid. So creating new habits it's gonna take, it, it's, we've been doing this more than 21 days. It's gonna take at least 21 days to start rewiring our brain to exhale. And I would encourage people to what are the, make a list of what are the things that bring you joy? What are the things that put a smile on your face? And depending on your risk tolerance level, can you start introducing stuff that maybe you haven't been able to do for the last two years? You know, maybe you used to be a, have a book club and that book club hasn't been able to meet in person. And now maybe you can meet in person or maybe you haven't felt comfortable going to the gym, but you feel like you can get back to exercising. And so you need a plan. You need to speak it. I really encourage people to have a plan for self-care and share share their self-care plan. Um, so whether you maybe you go to counseling, maybe you have a life coach, meditation, um, but what are the things that help you drain off stress and also recharge your batteries and fill your soul? So it looks different for everybody and certainly it can be different things at different seasons of your life as well as seasons of the year. Right now, you might be able to get back out and exercise outside because it's getting nice again. So I think it's really important to have that plan and re- and stick to it and make self-care a priority. Schedule it in like you schedule meetings.
1: I really like the idea of having a plan. Um, And also just starting with one or two things. It seems like it's really key to just get started. Um, Whether we're teammates uh, or leaders in an organization, we look around and we care about the people that we work with every day. How can we help others find and strengthen their resilience?
2: We can help others one by modeling self-care you know, if we're somebody who, you know, first one in, last one out, never takes vacation, we're not modeling self-care. So do you take a day off? Do you take a vacation? Do you ever leave for lunch? Um, so you know, do we talk about if meditation is really something that, that helps us? Do we talk, do we talk about what helps us? So being a light for others and a modeling for others, if you are sending emails at nine and 10 at night you're not modeling having any type of work-life balance. So I think one thing is to to model it and implement it. And if you are a manager or leader, um, you know, make sure you're demonstrating that because even if you're not saying it, but you're doing it, you're sending that message to your workers that you're kind of expecting this type of behavior. Um, The other thing would be like, what can you, you know, so in addition to modeling it, Um, And speaking about maybe it's volunteering, you share your volunteer experience and how much joy it brings you, but you could also offer to do something um, with that person, maybe you walk with them at lunchtime walk the parking lot so you 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 know you change the four walls and just kind of take a little break, Um, maybe you're going to offer to be an accountability partner, like even if you're just like let's maybe we're going to start a diet. Or maybe we're going to start exercise, or maybe we're just going to like make a commitment to do something nice for ourselves. And you create an accountability like, hey, I'm going to text you. I want to know, Steve, you've been working so hard. What are you going to do nice for yourself? You just finished that big project. What are you doing? I'm checking on you. I'm going to check on you and ask you what you did nice for yourself, you know, over the weekend or tonight. And so you can kind of create an accountability. Um, team and it's more fun to kind of do it um, together and to make self-care intentional. And you can even do that as a team too, where as a group, you're asking people who wants to be in on this self-care club or who wants to be in, um, we're going to, you know, we're going to be on a little fitness club or um, there's things I know that sometimes organizations will offer gym memberships or they'll they'll pay for a meditation app um, for their employees. So there's different ways that you can uh indoctrinated into the culture uh, of where you work.
1: That's really wise advice. And as you're describing, I'm envisioning doing these things. And one thing that strikes me is that and helping each other, we're helping ourselves and it becomes mutually reinforcing, which is a powerful thing. Like Absolutely. That. So Lynn, we've talked about what resilience is. When we need it, we've talked about the characteristics of resilience. We've talked about how we can find and strengthen our own resilience and help other people do the same. Let's flip the question now: What are the consequences of not being resilient?
2: It's a great question. So, when we're not resilient, when, when we're not resilient, when we're at that crossroads, at decision crossroads, that um, adversity happened, and now what? If we make the choice to not move forward that is a choice but we see people you get stuck and it's almost like having a hand in front of your face of adversity that's just right it's all you can see you can't see around it and if you don't fill your your life with things and people and then that hand doesn't move away and you continue to not really be able to see anything but adversity so people get stuck And when they get stuck, they start believing that the situation they're in is a forever moment. Adversity can be a bad moment, a bad chapter, a bad season. It does not need to be your entire book. And people who are not resilient, they become victims. And that victim speak, that Eeyore, they're the ones when you're sitting with them at the bleacher on the bleachers at a sporting event that are just everything that comes out of their mouth is negative, negative, negative or poor me. <clears throat> you know, you could be talking about the sun is shining and they're talking about like their knee having arthritis and, like you know, sunshine's terrible for them. And you're like, you know, those people want to eventually they repel people. So they push people away. It's lonely. <clears throat> they're, they get burned out. Their job performance often suffers, which is really uh, at risk. If you are in the healthcare profession, not, not a good thing. Um, you also can have personal health issues because you're trapping all that negativity inside of you. So think of like a two liter pop bottle being shook up, shook up and shook up over and over again. And over time, you know, whether it's ulcers or, You know, racing hard or you're, you know, it's going to, it's going to manifest itself or you're just really cranky and short with people around you because you're not draining it off. You're not letting it go. And then some people even cross over instead of filling themselves with positive coping skills, they cross over into what I call the dark side. They self-medicate, they're looking for escapism, you know, whether it's drugs or alcoholism, self-harm, retiring early, but they get stuck and those are the consequences of not being resilient. But any at any point, even if you are res- resilient or not being resilient or stuck for a period of time, it doesn't have to be for, you can still change. Anyone can become more resilient. You can implement this and you can get unstuck. It's and sometimes you need help. Sometimes these moments are too big. So, you know, getting help healthy people get help. Yeah. So whether it's a therapist or a life coach or identifying who's your, your wise sage that you go to, but talk to somebody, don't go it alone.
1: In my notes, I'm writing hope and help.
2: Yes. Two yeah. words
1: there. Lynn, in the public health world, we talk about protective factors and in listening Uh, to your insights, it strikes me that we live in an electronic culture that seems to thrive on the negative. What are some tricks of the trade for protecting ourselves from those kinds of influences that can actually erode our resilience?
2: Such a great question. Yes, we're in a 24-hour news cycle and so are your children. Um, So you can't get away from the negativity if you're always plugged in. So being intentional about when you get home, unplugging, put your phone on silent, put it in the other room. Don't be carrying your cell phone. Don't be addicted to every time it dings, to looking, looking, and responding, and staying engaged, uh, whether it's work or personal. Being present. If you're at the dinner table with your family, get get the TV off, get your phone off, get your laptop off be present in that moment. If you're watching TV or having game night with your family or close loved ones, if you're always looking at a device, you are not fully present. You're not allowing yourself, your brain to rest and to be focused in the now. So that's really, and and just the, the continual. And if you're watching whatever news channel, it doesn't matter who you pick, it is negative and it's nonstop. And if you're dealing with really heavy matters all day long, which if you're in the healthcare profession or nonprofit or just navigating COVID, guess what you are, you need a break, your mind, your body, you just need a break from it. So shutting that, shutting that off, doing something, getting outside of the house, doing something where you can drain it off is really important. Also knowing your tell signs. So that mind body connection, when you start getting overloaded or getting really stressed, what, where does it manifest? Is it stomach aches? Is it headaches? Do you get really sleepy? Do you get really forgetful? You can't find your, your glasses and they're on top of your head or you lock your keys in the car running? I mean, what are your tell signs when you start really getting overwhelmed and knowing that you need to take some deep breaths and you need to unplug and um, recharge?
1: Lynn Hughes, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. It's, it's grounded. It's powerful. It's practical. It's helpful. And it's hopeful. And we really appreciate it. And we wish you and Comfort Zone Camp all the best.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you again for joining us for this positive leadership conversation with Lynn Hughes of Comfort Zone Camp. We encourage you to learn more about Comfort Zone Camp and support their vital mission at comfort zone camp, all one word,